Thank you. There's some people saying good morning back to me. Thank you. Thank you. I can tell you're all ready for church history, and there's many, many seats up at the front. There always are at the beginning. They do fill in as we go. So, And we need the third great awakening. Thanks, Nathan. All right, Damon is passing around the uh, study guides to you guys. Which, forgive me if you find any grammatical errors on this. I was putting this together this morning, and then I decided I might as well print my lesson, and I decided I found out I was out of ink. So at about 6 this morning, I was trying to find 24-hour places, and I was like, well, maybe I should go to Walmart. They're open all the time, right? And they were, so, but it was a long task. So when I finished this up, I was in a rush. So um, forgive my grammatical errors. I'm sure Damon will correct me on them. Okay, well, let's see here. Uh, today we start what we are calling our ninth session of church history, which we began several years ago with another teacher, not me, but I've done the last four or five. Um, and this is our ninth session, and we started initially with the church in Acts, and then we did the early church, talked about the early church fathers, and we talked about the Dark Ages, uh, the, the church right before the Reformation, Spent a couple, couple six weeks periods on the Reformation itself, which we probably could do five or six more sessions on. Um, and I would like to do that because that's my favorite period of history. Um, and then the last couple times, we, we spent some time on the English Reformation as well. The last time we were together, though, section number eight, we talked about uh, the Great Awakening in America, um, primarily uh, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Um, we talked about the Methodist movement in England, um, and then we also talked about the beginning stages of the modern missionary movement with the great missionary William Carey. So that's where we are right now. We've kind of made it through, I think, um, the 1700s, and now here we are in the 18th, 1800s or the 19th century. So the thing we're going to primarily talk about today is the Second Great Awakening, and it was primarily in the United States, the new nation of the United States in the 19th century. Um, but before we get into that, I was doing some research a couple weeks ago on why we study church history, and I came across a great blog. Man, blogs are great. Just type stuff in. You can find whatever you want. This guy laid out all the points I needed about why we study church history. So <laughs> you don't have to hear the, the uh, church history reasons that I've given for like four or five straight weeks, but we get somebody else, or four or five straight sessions, so we get somebody else's here. So this is, this is what I got from, uh, from a blogger. Uh, the first thing, why we study church history is, number one, God tells us to do it. Um, the Old Testament is filled with times where God, and we'll talk about one coming up when we read scriptures, uh, where God has told his people to remember the deeds that he's done and to mark those and to teach them to your children. So God has told us to study history. Number two, Church history helps us understand today. Um, it shows us that we are not too far different from our um, ancestors in the past, and it helps us avoid the sins and mistakes that they have made in some cases. Um, so it helps us understand today. It also helps us understand tomorrow. Um, so by understanding, by understanding the past, we can correct issues that we might have in the future most importantly, probably, though, it helps us understand God's providence. 
you know, that he is a faithful God. And we can see the many ways in which God's providence has been displayed throughout history. And we can see how trials and circumstances have effect, affected great uh, Christian leaders in the past and how they responded to those things and how God was faithful to bring them through. Uh, so as he has been faithful, as God has been faithful to men and women of days gone by, he will be faithful to us and to our children. This assurance gives us great stability in our faith. I think this is important. As we, as we live out this Christian life, we're not the first ones to do it. You know, we have two, uh, two millennia of people since Christ was on earth developing theology and doctrine for us to study and for us to apply to our lives. So we're we're not at this alone. So it helps us to understand error, that a lot of times a lot of the great Christian doctrines of the faith have been challenged, and they've been strengthened as people have argued against them. So we can understand what error really is, and that the Christian theology and true biblical Christianity is constant throughout the ages. Uh, next, we get to understand people, including those of us in this room and myself. Um, by studying history, we can come to know and understand people. We can come to see the parts of their lives that brought glory to God and the parts that brought him dishonor. No one is perfect. The greatest uh, Christian leaders um, in church history, obviously none of them were perfect, and they had great, great flaws and faults. And we can look upon them and say, hey, I have great flaws and faults, but God is faithful. And um, so we can... Have a, we can apply our lives to their lives as well. And lastly, we can understand endurance. So as we see how men and women have persevered throughout the history of the church, we are strengthened with endurance, knowing that we too shall be witnesses to Christ's return when that great day finally arrives. So that's seven reasons why we study church history. Um, I hope you got all of those. If not, we're recording this, so you can get it. And if you'd like a link to that blog, I can provide it to you. Just let me know. Um, Let's see. So that's why we're here. This is, you know, Joe just finished up his survey course, his beginning of a survey course of 1 Samuel last week. Um, and then we're going to, after I teach, we'll do uh, systematic theology, and then we'll uh, probably do some biblical apologetics with Brent, and maybe at some point we'll do some a Christian living topic again as the need arises. So let's turn in your Bibles, please, to Joshua 4 verse 21 through 24. So this is an Old Testament example of Israel as they have entered the promised land across the Jordan River. And they are celebrating God's faithfulness as they uh, have crossed the Jordan River and God has provided their way into the promised land. And this is what they did out of memorial for that uh, verse let's start with verse 20 and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan Joshua set up at Gilgal and he said to the people of Israel when your children ask their fathers in times to come what do these stones mean then you shall say to your children you shall let your children know Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear your, the Lord your God forever. So my hope is that we would be similar 
to the uh, Israelites in the time of Joshua as they crossed the promised land. As we, as we study church history, that we would mark it in our memories and that we would worship God more because of it. Um, we should see that the major events of church history are memorials of God's sovereign hand, just like these stones were memorials for the Israelites. Um, each period in the history of the church reveals events worthy of our understanding and our mem- remembering. So my prayer for these sessions is that we would come away with a greater understanding of God and that our worship would increase and then that our, that our remembrance of these things would help us to worship God as more holy, more righteous, more forgiving, more faithful, more wise, more gracious, and most of all, more glorious. So that, as, that a, as an introduction, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, Lord, and we understand that we are a needy people and we're in need of your grace. And Lord, as we come to study your church, Lord, we understand that throughout the ages, Lord, your church is a, was made up of a people, Lord, who um, needed you. And Lord, you have been faithful, and we praise you for that. Lord, I pray um, as we go forward in this um, next six weeks period, Lord, that we would find you as more glorious and holy. Lord, I pray that we would not focus on the achievements of men, but Lord, that we would see your hand at work in people's lives to bring you glory. And in turn, Lord, may we grow in our knowledge of you and our understanding and our praise of you so that you might be worthy of even more worship by our understanding. Lord, we love you. I pray that you would just bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's see. Got a lot of paperwork up here, and I've got to get myself reorganized. Um, uh-oh, handout. Do I have a handout? Oh, yes, I do. No, I don't. Uh, uh, Damon, may I get a handout? It's not that I need it. It's that I need to tell you what to write down. Um, yeah, I do actually. I, I, you know, I spent time. I spent time fill, Ah, I spent time filling in my own blanks, and here, they, here it is. Okay. Well, like I said last time we were together, we spent a significant amount of time on the first Great Awakening in America, and that emphasized um, God's move of the Spirit in uh, primarily New England and the Middle Colonies, and even in the Southern Colonies prior to the revolution and the uh, establishment of the United States. So we looked at great leaders like Edwards and Whitfield, and I really exhort you to take some time to study those guys. I mean, they're, they are amazing, amazing um, faithful men that, that are worth your study. So if you want to go back and listen to those messages, you can, I think. So uh, today, though, we're going to spend our time talking about the uh, second great awakening in primarily in America. There is some, some involvement of the Second Great Awakening in other areas, and we'll get to that uh, going forward in the next couple weeks. Um, but we're going to talk about the Second Great Awakening. So this is at the dawn of the 19th century. So America is 20, 25 years old at this time, um, and we're going to see the challenges that brings up for America. So we'll see the state of the church prior to the awakening, the initial revivals of the awakening, the rise of American Methodism, Uh, led by Francis Asbury, and the influence of the lawyer-turned-revivalist Charles Finney. Um, And then we'll come back in a few weeks. The the Baptists were pretty crucial at this time. I couldn't really fit them into this outline, but I have a a whole section, kind of a whole whole week where I want to talk about American denominationalism because there's kind of this 
there's this emphasis on denominations in America in the 19th century. And I want to spend some time on the Baptists then. Uh, but they're kind of similar to the Methodists to some degree today, so I'll kind of lump them in with them. Um, and then, if time permitting, I really got going on this, and I have like seven pages of notes, and I usually have five, so we probably won't get to this. But I wanted to make a comparison of the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening, uh, kind of compare and contrast, because they're very, uh, there's a couple similarities, and there's a lot of differences. Um, and then I also wanted to look at the legacy of the second Great Awakening in America and how that impacts us today and for the last couple centuries. Once again, we probably won't get to that, and I probably will ask that we not get to that today because I want to fully develop some more thoughts about the Second Great Awakening and especially Charles Finney and the impact that has on uh, America today and American Protestantism. Okay, so the condition of the world and the church at the end of the 1700s, just some things that have gone on. Um, uh, there's the Enlightenment in France and in Europe. Uh, the French Revolution occurred. So there's kind of this rise against the establishment, and including the Roman Catholic Church in France. Uh, there's American independence. I mean, that's, that's a huge ordeal in world history. There's the Industrial Revolution that's kind of going on, which kind of changes things. Um, kind of different classes of people start arising. Uh, there's the British imperialism of the previous century of the 1700s, where they were going to all these different lands, and there's uh, you know ships going to you know, Australia into India and to uh, Africa and all these places, which we'll get into at some point because there's the 19th century is the modern missionary movement. So all this background of British and other countries um, kind of colonizing other areas opens up the door for Protestant missions throughout, um, uh, throughout the world. So we'll get into that. Those are kind of some major overall world history things that are going on as we're heading into the 19th century. So at the time, between the first Great Awakenings, which we would say are kind of in the middle of the 1700s, um, and the second Great Awakening, which occurs actually, let's see, I had a date here, but probably uh, roughly beginning around 1795, and then depending upon your read, to about 1810, maybe up until the life of Finney to 1830, um, uh, there was a general falling away from the church, a significant falling away from the church, Church membership in America in between the two awakenings was very low. It's thought to be between 10 and 15 percent. So, several reasons can be given for this. I've, this is in your notes. Number one, obviously, is between the first and second great awakenings. There was a significant falling away from the church. The church membership was as low as 10 percent. Several reasons for this. One is the rise of deism, which we did talk about some the last time, which is the idea that kind of the, you know, it rejects the Trinity, it rejects uh, supernaturalism, the, uh, the idea of miracles, um, and the main person for that in colonial or new America is a man by the name of Thomas Paine, who wrote the book also that led America to revolution, Common Sense. But he wrote the book called The Age of Reason in 1794 where he questioned the supernatural. And it was as popular as common sense, which was used to ignite the revolution. Um, the pastors of the day saw Paine as a great threat and said that the world, the devil, and Thomas Paine were the enemies of the church. Um, but other than this, this is not on your list, but 
another, I guess, philosophical or theological concern, um, besides or two others besides deism, were Unitarianism, the idea that there isn't a trinity, and just um, that's the New England Church kind of adopted that, and even the idea of universalism that all would eventually be saved uh, were involved. That's that kind of would fall under A still, but the primary thing for A is deism. Second, the revolution itself distracted um, the church. Not the church as a whole. I mean, the church was there, but there was divided loyalties. I mean, when you've got war going on in your in your neighborhood, and um, the rev- so the revolution itself probably distracted the church to some degree. Uh, there was the establishment of the new nation. I mean, we don't. How are we going to govern ourselves? What are we going to do? How are we going to interact with society? So that's the third thing: is the establishment of the new nation provided a distraction to the church. Um, the fourth uh, was the uh, movement, uh, westward movement. So people are becoming pioneers and moving to the west, places like Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio. They're moving away from the eastern seaboard where there's know, a, a decent amount of large metropolitan areas, and now they're going to frontier life where there's less of a sense of community and very few churches as well. So these things took a toll on the American church to the, to the degree that there was about 10 to 15 percent of the population were church members. Really, that's pretty astoundingly low for America, which, you know, the pilgrims came to establish religious freedom primarily because they wanted to worship God and not be told by the state. Um, so within you know 150 years or so, it's already gotten to that point. Um, but so as you can see, with only 10% of the people in churches, there's a need for the church to be awakened, and God was faithful to awaken the church again in the Second Great Awakening. Um, let's see. The first thing we want to talk about is in on the western frontier of Kentucky. So here, the church is kind of in uh, the northeast down the eastern seaboard through like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, down through Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina. That's, that's, your, that's your 13 colonies, and those are the, the states of the Union. And, um, but as this move towards the West occurs, there's a need for the people to be churched or to be uh, in a community of believers. So um, there's for about 15 to 20 years, there's a lack of that. But then certain leaders rose up um, and began uh, – meeting and seeing people in their, in their places in the West. So the first thing is the Cane Ridge Revival of 1801. So on the western frontier of Kentucky, the first great revival, the second great awakening, occurred in 1801 at Cane Ridge, C-A-N-E. And this was under the leadership. All right, my notes don't. We'll come back to the middle section there, but this is, this is the third part here. Uh, this was under the leadership of the Presbyterian minister by the name of James McGreedy, Mech, G-R-E-A-D-Y, along with several Baptist and Methodist itinerant preachers. So they began in 1797 to pray for the conversion of sinners in Kentucky and throughout the world. And in 1801, they began seeing fruit of their prayers as God was saving people throughout the southern col- counties of Kentucky and the northern counties of Tennessee. They, they got together and they had these meetings. They had revival meetings, which were actually, I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about this. Okay, they had these revival meetings, and it was based on a Presbyterian, a Scottish Presbyterian view of, uh, of when they'd come and gather and take communion. So 
this community of Scottish Presbyterians would come together, and they would come together for days at a time. They didn't come together and just, you know, come to church on Sunday and, you know, take communion and we're done with it all. But no, they, they came together, and it was a scheduled every several months opportunity for them to get together, hear the word preached on many occasions for a couple days, and, you know, they were probably intense and stuff like that. So this is the idea where we get like a camp meeting, and they would meet, and they would, at the end of that, you know, there would be a time of repentance and confession, and then people would take the Lord's Supper. Um, so they kind of got together in this camp meeting at this time in the tradition of the Scottish Presbyterian uh, tradition. So they gathered, but this wasn't limited to just the Presbyterians. It was also, um, the, there was Baptist and Methodist itinerant preachers who were involved as well. Um, so this, this, the most famous of the revivals was, uh, or this camp meeting, was at Cane Ridge in 1801. They, these Presbyterian, Baptist, and Methodist ministers all, ministers all proclaimed the good news, and thousands gathered to hear the message from charismatic proclaimers of the gospel, and many were saved. Now, there were some, um, and there's a lot of information out there about Cane Ridge, that there was a lot of emotional outbursts, um, things like uh, people responding to the word preached with jerks or laughing or dancing or running around in circles. Um, now, that wasn't necessarily encouraged by the preachers, but little was actually done to condone it. So there was like this appeal to the emotions. Now, some of the historians I read, which, you know, gave a whole bunch of psychological reasons for it. I don't really believe that. You know, it's like there's this, they, one said this was, it was an emotional release of the people that were living in the frontier. And then they, so they responded to the gospel preached with these, you know, emotional outbursts. I don't know. I'm not that smart to understand that. Um, um, but there was, uh, there, there was a thought, though, that the zeal of the preachers, the charismaticness of their message they preached, outweighed their real understanding of Scripture and the gospel. So the Methodists, the Presbyterians are obviously very well schooled at that time, and the Baptists and the Methodists were generally um, not very well educated in comparison. Um, so there's a thought that the zeal of those preachers kind of outweighed the education of those and maybe didn't have a proper grasp of that. So the Presbyterians actually kind of split away at that point from the Baptists and the um, Methodists in the, those revivals. But there was great success to some degree um, for the Baptists and the Methodists. Um, and there were dozens of revival camp meetings like this on the frontier. Um, and there was an immediate establishment and growth of the Baptist and the Methodist Church. Now, as the Presbyterian Church broke away from those type meetings, they continued to minister to people in those areas, and they they saw some growth in the South and in the uh, in the West. When I say West, I don't mean like California. You guys understand that? I don't mean California. I don't even mean Texas. I don't even mean Missouri. You know, I mean like Ohio and Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, so, but the result of the Cane Ridge. Cane Ridge Revival and other revivals like it were um, the Methodists and the Baptists were a force for evangelism and preaching the gospel on the western frontier. Um, and then eventually, by the 1830s, Methodists and Baptists combined would um, make up more Christians in America than the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians, which were kind of the stalwarts of the First Great Awakening in the 1700s.
Right, to truly see that, though, we need to look at a little bit more detail about American Methodism, and primarily um, a man by the name of Francis Asbury. So the major shift of American population to the western frontier called for a change of course for the church. And it was the Methodists who first began to see the need to reach out to the people of the frontier and to meet them where they were. Instead of waiting for the people to call for the preacher, the Methodists called the people to faith. Um, and the Methodists used men that were called circuit riders. You guys are familiar with that term. They're preachers on horseback that would go to small communities or individuals' homes or large plats of land and preach the gospel. Um, and they would preach to anyone who would listen. They were tough, dedicated, and zealous in their efforts to evangelize the frontier. Um, do I have a light? Maybe. Um, when it rained, people would say, there's nothing out today except for crows and Methodist preachers. So they were so um, um, committed to their craft and so inspired um, by the gospel. Uh, one of the great circus riders was a man by the name Circuit. Circus riders? Circuit riders. We'll get to the circus later. Uh, one of the great circus riders. There you go again. Must be needed. One of the great circuit riders was a man by the name of Peter Cartwright, who summed up his role as a cir circuit rider, saying, We could not, many of us, conjugate a verb or parse a sentence, and we have murdered the king's English at every lick. But there was a divine unction that attended the word preach, and thousands fell under the mighty power of God. So many people were saved as a um, as a result of this, but it wasn't based upon these guys' education per se, but it was the zeal that they um, attributed um, or they contributed to the gospel. So the, uh, the Methodists were led by one man, and it's primarily, and his name is Francis Asbury. Um, he's number four. Under the amazing leadership of Francis Asbury, Asbury is A-S-B-U-R-Y, the Methodists experienced growth talk about those stats in a second. Don't want to give that away. Uh, he, was, he, he lived from 1745 to 1816, um, and he was the leading uh, Methodist minister in America prior to the Second Great Awakening and during the Second Great Awakening. Uh, he came to America from England as he was commissioned by John Wesley himself, the uh, English Methodist, uh, and there he was committed. In America, he was committed to meeting the people where they were, now, this was different than the other Methodist leaders who were content just to work in their little communities and not outreach. Um, when the revolution occurred, all Methodist leaders returned to England since Wesley had condemned the revolution. Asbury stayed and began to provide the necessary leadership for the future growth of the Methodist Church in America. His Christmas conference of 1784 uh, laid out his vision for Christian or American Christian Methodism. Asbury himself was a circuit rider just like many of his uh, people under him, as well as he was the general superintendent for Methodism. So as the 19th century dawned, Methodism had already seen some growth, especially in the western areas, since the traditional denominations had not moved west with the pioneers. Um, it is thought that Asbury traveled some 300,000 miles on horseback, and he crossed the Appalachian Mountains 60 times. So pretty and his emphasis was to go where the gospel was needed. So there was people beyond those mountains that he went to see, and he encouraged a, a ton of other men to do the same. Here's, here's, a, here's a, a note from his journal. This is uh, 
his description of his normal activities, which were pretty strenuous. He says, my present mode of conduct is to read about 100 pages a day, to preach in the open air every other day, and to lecture in prayer meetings every evening. And his, journey, his journeys were difficult, but Asbury was undaunted. He says, the wa- this is out of his journal, the water froze as it ran from the horse's nostrils. I have suffered a little by lodging in open houses this cold winter, but this is a very small thing when compared to what the dear Redeemer suffered for the salvation of precious souls. So you can see that uh, Asbury himself was greatly committed to evangelizing and sharing the gospel to the point that, you know, no one probably traveled as much on horseback at that time in America as he did. And he is much to be um, lauded for that. Uh, what was his emphasis? What were his theological concerns? He is a Methodist in the tradition of Wesley, which we kind of went over in pretty good detail last time. Here's some things, though, for you. I've got seven points here, so be ready. He's going to be coming at you rapid fire. Uh, number one, or A, God's free grace. Uh, B, uh, humanity's liberty to accept or reject grace. So he's Arminian in his view of salvation. Um, C, I didn't give you much room, but I think I'll work it out. Uh, The idea of Christian perfection. Which... Uh, according to Wesley, is the end to willful sin after conversion. We wouldn't agree with that, but that's something he emphasized. Four, the Methodist organization. Um, he set up local classes and then preaching circuits that circuit riders uh, attended to, and they all met uh, yearly at general conferences to make sure that all the uh, Methodist movement was being properly um, described. Let's see, number f- uh, E, uh, the idea of West- Wesleyan spirituality, and that's an emphasis of communing with Christ and fellow, the idea that communing with Christ and fellow believers is primary. He emphasized almost demanding standards of holiness, which is good. Expectation that if one is saved, that they should live a holy life. And the last point is G, the social responsibility of the believer. And this is something we're going to see going forward in the 19th century, is that there's this idea of, as people are saved, they should be involved in a, a sort of social activism. Advocatism. Is that a word? I don't know. Advocacy. How about that? Um, but in this social responsibility of the believer, Asbury was committed to advocating a, uh, for the abolition of slavery, um, for education, and abstinence from liquor, and wanted to see those things in society as well. All right. All right, to see the true measure of, this is, actually goes back to number four, to see the true measure of Asbury's great work is to study the numbers. When he arrived in 1771, there were four, four ministers serving about 300 Methodist lay people. And then as, at his death, 
there were approximately 2,000 ministers. So he died, what year did he say? 1816. And they were serving nearly 200,000 lay people. So in 40 years, great growth. Part of that could be attributed as well to just immigration as a whole to America. But the Methodists themselves were committed to ministering to those immigrants as well. Um, uh, a word, as we're still on the frontier, uh, a word about the Baptists, which I said I'm going to talk about a little bit later in the semester. Um, the, the Baptists primarily, the preachers that were involved in the movement at that time were primarily farmers who worked their land all the time and then preached when given the opportunity. Um, and they were not well educated. Um, they did not have the organization at that time in the early 1800s that the Methodists had. But however, they were zealous in gospel preaching, and many came to Christ because of their work, um, God's work through them. All right, so next, um, so we kind of touched on the main part of the Second Great Awakening was first in the West, then it comes East as well, back to the original colonies uh, of the, or the original states of the Union. So in the East, revival came um, in colleges primarily. Um, the, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but m the colleges in the Ivy League, you know, you're like your Princetons, your Yales, your Dartmouths, your Browns. Um, give me another one. Harvard, thank you. You're the first one. Good. <laughs> all were founded as Christian universities. So they all were centers to train pastors, um, and they all have a specific, like, um, denomination or influence at their founding. But by the time of the, eight, the end of the 1700s, they had waned, and they had been heavily influenced by deism and uh, the age of reason. And they had not been holding up their end of the bargain as training pastors um, as they should have. But there was a group of faithful ministers who had prayed for God to awaken the northeast part of the country. And one of these men was a man by the name of Timothy Dwight, who was a pastor who was appointed president of Yale University. And he became the president, I think it's, yeah, 1795. And there are several hundred students at the time in Yale, and most of them were unbelievers. So Dwight, as a committed Christian, was praying. He, he committed to praying for the revival of Yale University. And he had the opportunity at um, uh, general assemblies and stuff to preach uh, the gospel to the students. And he did that faithfully for about five or six years. And then in 1802, revival came to Yale University, and one-third of the students became Christians, were saved, um, which is pretty amazing. What is the impact then of those students becoming believers is that they enter fields that are important. Um, they become lawyers or doctors or pastors. So then they are saved, and they're in these roles, and they're preaching the gospel uh, to people going forward. So that was a huge thing um, in revival. Um, but Dwight's emphasis was against the rampant deism of the day, and his attempts were to restore confidence of these believers in the scriptures, because the scriptures had been completely undermined by um, Thomas Paine and the deism of the day. Um, next, though, was Princeton College in New Jersey which is right near where Dan grew up, I believe. Um, in 1813, there was a group of four 
students that were believers on Princeton's campus. Four, four. So there's several hundred that were there. Um, and they were led by a man by the name of Daniel Baker, a student. So at Yale, you have the university president, the leader of the revival. At Princeton, it's a student and his friends, primarily a man by the name of Daniel Baker, uh, praying earnestly and pretty much effectively you know, evangelizing the students themselves and having you know, personal ministry opportunities with the people. He didn't have the form of a general assembly like Timothy Dwight did at Yale. But he, uh, Daniel Baker and his fellow student, three other students in 1813, um, started praying as they went to Princeton for a revival. And in 1815, God saved about 50 individuals on their campus, one of which was the great Princeton uh, theologian of about 50 years later, Charles Hodge, 30, 50 years later. So it, it was at that time that he was saved. And um, we can be, we're grateful for his work on systematic theology ever since. Um, and Daniel Baker later became a pastor as he left Princeton. And he took on different roles as a pastor down, down the eastern seaboard towards the south. And he made his way into the south. And he actually died as a Presbyterian pioneer in 1840 in Texas. It's kind of interesting. And his tombstone, his tombstone at his request says, Daniel Baker, preacher of the gospel, a sinner saved by grace. So that's the impact of this man. He's already made his way all the way to Texas by 1840. Of course, 1836, Texas uh, broke away from Mexico. And I think uh, Texas historians, I don't know, was it 1840, 1841 that Texas becomes part of the Union? Anyway, okay. Somewhere around, we'll go with 1841. Um, so local revivals, because of these students, occurred up and down the eastern seaboard, and hardly a locale existed where people weren't praying for revival or thanking God for revival. Uh, one important preacher in the north was a Congregationalist, so they're still around, by the name of Asahel, A-S-A-H-E-L, haven't heard it said, so Nettleton, and he preached the Reformed faith, like the doctrine of depravity and the need for repentance, faith, and regeneration. His method was to remain in churches, so he would... He was a revivalist, but he would remain in churches for several months, and um, he would give personal attention to the parishioners, uh, kind of to counsel people and to see true fruit in their lives. Um, uh, he would stay there for several months, and um, he wanted to see the true fruit of those who claimed to be converted, and God used his influence to see many persevere in the faith. That brings us to, oh my goodness. All right, I've got 10 minutes. All right, let's see how this works. Okay, that brings us to, Charles Finney, who is probably the most dominant figure of the second great, kind of the end of the second great awakening and revivalism and Protestant Christianity in, of all of the 19th century. Um, let me just give you, I'm not going to be able to finish this, so let's just, let me just give you a little bit of information about Finney, and we'll, maybe we'll get to some of it. Um, Finney used powerful, controlled revivalist methods on the frontier in large cities, and even Great Britain as a revivalist. Uh, not only did he desire to see the conversion of souls, but he joined those conversions of souls with social reform. Just a little background on Finney. He was converted in 1821. He's a lawyer, and he immediately became a preacher, leaving behind his career in law. And he said the day after his conversion to one of his clients who inquired about his case that was about to go before a judge, he says, I now have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ to plead his cause 
and I cannot plead yours. So he, so he was a lawyer one day, he's a preacher the next day, and he ceases to do any more lawyering. Um, the main thing that Finney did was he created something called his New Measures for Revival. And these were tools he used to evangelize the populace. The first thing he did, uh, this is number eight right here. Uh, well, I'm going to give you number seven right now. He also had an emphasis on social reform, somewhat similar to Asbury, as we talked about. Um, the first thing, his, what his new measures included, number one was the idea of the protracted meeting, which were nightly meetings over several, <laughs> over a several week period. So what that is is, it's the idea of, hey, hey, we're going to have revival. You know, I mean, this is, we all know about this. This is, this is the beginning of the camp meeting, the tent meeting, the, the things we see here. I mean, this is the first time this was happened, really. He said, we're going to, we are having revival. Because it was dependent upon him, you know, to cause revival. Or, I don't know. But that, the protracted meeting, they would meet for weeks to see God revealed Second thing he used as he preached, he was a preacher. He was a gifted preacher. And if I was really good at PowerPoint, we'd have PowerPoint presentations, but I'm not. But there's pictures of Finney, and he has these. Look it up. Just go Google Charles Finney and look at the pictures of him. He has these just very engaging eyes, almost scary to some degree, but in, in all the paintings or, uh, that, that exist of him. Um, so he's, he's a very gifted orator and preacher. But he used something called, secondly, the anxious bench, which is very, this is, this is, uh, these are things that go on today. I mean, that, that this is the, the, I guess, 19th century equivalent to the altar and the altar call, uh, which is very um, involved in uh, American Protestant, Protestantism today, evangelicalism. Um, so he would call people to the front of the auditorium where when he wanted them to respond to the message and he wanted them to pray and repent there on the anxious bench. Um, this was the precursor to the altar call. He said regarding the anxious bench, he said, if you say to the sinner, there is the anxious seat, come out and avow your determination to be on the Lord's side. And if he's not willing to do a small thing as that, not willing to do anything. So this is a requirement almost for him. Um, there were also the third thing I would have is that Finney. I need to think of a nice way to say this. I wrote played on the emotions, but how about engage the emotions? Um, he had, he was involved in getting people to respond with emotional weeping, fainting, and other excitements during his sermons. Um, this is probably the most important or most notorious, I don't, whatever, you can use your term. Um, the idea that the, he believed that the preacher could create a setting in revival where people could be generally saved. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's the emphasis there is on what Finney's doing, not on what the work of the Lord is. And this is what Finney would say about that. I mean, he has these very successful revivals for 10, 12, 15 years. And then he trains up people on how to have revivals. This is how you handle revivals, and this is you're going to have a good result. And this is what he says, and he wrote books about it too. He says, the connection between the right use of means for a revival and a revival 
is as scientifically sure as between the right use of means to raise grain and a crop of wheat. A farmer who knows what he is doing knows how to raise wheat. If he does it right, he will get wheat. A Christian or preacher who knows what he is doing and does it right will get a revival. The connection is that precise and scientific. So this is the second Great Awakening. This is a hundred years, maybe 90, 80 years after Jonathan Edwards, who after revival broke out in uh, his church, wrote a book called um, A Surprising Work of God. So there was no conjuring up of these emotions in order to um, cause people to believe in Christ. But Finney's emphasis was on making the perfect setting in order for people to believe. Um, I don't think we have to think very far about instances in today's church that are similar to that. Um, so this might be, well, let me just get to the Finney. I think I have, I didn't, I didn't give you a mark for this, but you might as well put down a, I've got like six points real quick you can write down about uh, Finney's theology. I'll give you these points knowing that we're going to discuss them a little bit more next week because I have, I have some good articles talking about this. And I can talk about it more next week. Uh, number one, he's Arminian, obviously, but more Arminian than Wesley. Uh, Wesley still held to the idea of preparatory grace, which was bestowed on the believer before he accepted Christ. Um, Finney rejected that idea. He believed in perfectionism and thought it was available to anyone who earnestly sought it. Uh, as far as the atonement, he believed in the governmental view of it, the atonement. And it's the idea that Christ's death shows that God was willing to forgive sin rather than it being a payment for sin itself. Um, he denied the idea of original sin. Um, his preaching goal was to have the sinner make a decision instead of being having a pointed um, sermon about Christ as the main object. And then he emphasized human morality. Okay, let me do this last little bit, and then we'll talk next week about the results of the Second Great Awakening. We'll develop this Finian, is that right? Sounds good. Finian theology a little bit more. And then I think after we look at Finney's theology, and see how um, influential it was in the 19th century, we can then see what has happened to the church since, to some degree. We're going to jump ahead just a little bit just to see how that influenced the church going forward. Um, one thing about Finney, though, that's important is that he, the, the, on number seven on your point, I said that he had new measures for revival, and he had an emphasis on social reform. Um, now, evangelism was primary for him, but he, he had social reform pretty close up there with um, evangelism. So he promoted many things um, that would help society. One was benevolence ministries, the abolition of slavery, education of women, temperance, peace, Sabbatarianism, uh, the care for the mentally handicapped. And these were all things that he said, as soon as you were converted at the anxious bench, you would be involved in giving back to society in some way, doing this. Um, and it was his emphasis and the revivalist tradition of emphasis on personal morality and social reform 
that created a culture of Christian morality in America for the 19th century. Um, so there's this idea that America is a Christian nation, you know. The 19th century does as much to give the idea of a Christian nation as does the pilgrims, as does the Puritans in, uh, in Jonathan Edwards' day or before that. Or for the 19th century, it continues, but it's more because of the social uh, commitment that Finney and other revivalists have played, uh, how they emphasize that um, to new believers and to the believers as a whole, which caused things to change in America, probably for the better. But the question is, is that the primary goal of the church, or is the primary goal of the church to exalt Christ and to grow in greater knowledge of who Christ is, which then impacts culture? And here, I don't know, I guess here's my judgment, sorry. Um, that I think what happens here is there's an elevation of the social gospel at the devaluing of Christ, which is scary, and kind of sees where that is eroded over time in the American church. So we'll come to that next week. So that'll be really fun. Uh, do you all have any questions about that? We'll, we'll talk more about Finney next week. I know I kind of rushed through him. Concerns? Okay. No. No. <laughs> I did last time talk about Wesley, but I will. I'll, I'll throw out a definition there, yeah, next week, because um, I want to think about that a little bit further. <laughs> so I don't really get it. Uh, okay, well, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll go out. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for your goodness to us, Lord. We praise you for Christ. Lord, thank you so much that you offered him as a perfect substitute for my salvation, Lord, and for the salvation of those in this church, Lord. Lord, how we need him, and we need your grace daily. Lord, we are but sinners and in need of that grace. So, Lord, we praise you for that. Um, we thank you that it's free. It's not dependent on any work that we do and that you were, uh, have continued to be faithful to us in that. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for this day. I pray that we would worship you more because of our study today and our time in your, in your word at church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.